0: Welcome back to the podcast. I hope you liked our previous episodes on the Haudenosaunee. We will be coming back to them, but now we're going to shift focus towards the Dutch and the colony of New Netherland. And there's a reason we're interrupting the Haudenosaunee episodes with the story of New Netherland. It's because these two stories will be interweaving with one another. So if you don't care for New Netherland, but you really want to hear about the Haudenosaunee, there'll be another episode coming up eventually. But the story of the Dutch and the Haudenosaunee are intricately connected. And so we would be remiss to not bring up one half of this story here. So to start off, the big question is, who are the Dutch? We're going to talk about who the Dutch were in the 17th century. But even today, there is a little bit of confusion uh, that I think Americans have about who the Dutch are. And I hear different things from my students. So I get a general sense of where the confusion lies. So some people say, oh, the Dutch, they're from Holland. And then others people say, oh, no, the Dutch, they're from the Netherlands. Well, first off, Holland is inside of the Netherlands. So both camps are right. Holland is a huge part of the Netherlands. It'd be like uh, New York, Texas, Florida, and California added together, at least. So when somebody says the Dutch are from Holland, well, there are Dutch people in Holland, but Dutch people are also from other places inside of the nation of the Netherlands. And then every now and then I hear, well, Dutch people are from Denmark, just because it kind of sounds like the same thing. Danish people are from Denmark. Danish is more than just a, uh, you know, something you eat in the morning. It's also a whole group of people, and they're from Denmark. I understand there's confusion with the sounding there, but Dutch people are usually from the Netherlands. So we're going to take a really quick deep cut through time to really explain the history of the Dutch people and how they came to be and understand themselves as an ethnic group. And we're going to go all the way back to the ancient Romans and then very quickly speed ahead. So if you get bored, it'll only be a couple minutes. The Dutch people are a Germanic people. They speak a Germanic language. That's not to say they are Germans. So the label Germanic is like if you have circles inside of circles, you'll have a little circle that says German and you'll have a little circle that says Dutch. And believe it or not, you have a little circle that says English and Danish. And then you have a larger circle around all those that say Germanic. So German is not the center of the Germanic languages. It's just the term we have for it. So the Dutch are a Germanic language, and it's somewhat similar to English. Every now and then, if you listen to Dutch, you'll be like, what did you say? I kind of understood that. So there is a lot of shared language there, and they are related. English, though, is kind of the outlier because we have so much French influence from the Norman invasion that English is almost a hybrid language, but the root of our language is actually also Germanic. So if you go back to the Roman Empire, there are a few accounts of these Germanic people living right on the border of the Roman Empire, where the Netherlands is today. And in fact, the Roman Empire roughly split the Netherlands today in half. So half of it had all the advantages of Roman culture and language and trade. And the other half was the wilderness, as far as they were concerned. It was out there. It was the Germanic nothing. It was the, the void, so to speak. And there were many Germanic tribes written about in this area that we now call the Netherlands. One of them is the Frisian people, who still exist. And they still have a language, and it's actually the closest living language to English that isn't English. And so, again, if you listen to Frisian, every now and then you'll be like, I think I I I know what that means. What, What did you say? What did you say? It almost sounds like you misheard somebody, when in reality they're just speaking a different language. So the Frisians, they still mostly live in the Netherlands today, and they're quite distinct from the Dutch people, but they all live harmoniously among one another. Now, other groups that we see in that area are the early Saxons. So a group of the Saxons left the continent and moved to the island of Britain, and along with the Angles, it was the Angles, the Saxons, and the Jutes. And they are all very closely related. And that's kind of the origin of the English language on the, uh, in the British Isles. And now that's where the connection comes between Dutch and English. The commonality is that at one time, the people who were speaking Old English and the people who were speaking what we're going to call Frankish were very close together. Now you might say to yourself, well, why were the Dutch people speaking something called Frankish? Well, the Frankish tribes, they were all Germanic. And they had this huge confederation, and they were probably a whole bunch of different types of Germanic people kind of put together. That old Dutch is actually old Frankish. So the root of the French language is actually Latin. It's not Frankish. And as it turns out, the root of the Dutch language is Frankish. So a big part of the Dutch people today is made out of a contingent of Frankish Germanic people, you know, 1,500 years ago along with Frisians and Saxons being assimilated slowly in other groups that kind of make up the identity of the modern-day Dutch people. But we have a long way to go before the Dutch really seem to recognize that even though we don't live in the same exact state, we're all Dutch here. So let's quickly move up to the fall of the Roman Empire and that dark period afterwards. Western Europe is in shambles. Everything reverts to a feudal way of living, and nobody really has communication outside of a 10-mile radius of where they live. And then all of a sudden, the mighty Franks, they rise up and they unify a huge part of Western Europe for the first time in a very long time. And the guy to really do it, and his family, before and after, is going to be Charlemagne. Okay, and that's the French term for Charles the Great, basically. But it's more likely that Charles the Great referred to himself as Karl. Because it's likely he spoke Frankish, and he was more German than French. And I know I'm going to offend a lot of French people by saying that, but it seems like he was more Germanic than Latin. And I'm not sure you can debate that fact. And so because of Charlemagne, most of the ruling families in pretty much all of Europe eventually is either going to be Frankish in origin or descended somehow from the Franks, even partially. I mean, to this day, I bet every monarch in Europe is descended from a Frankish king at some point. So the Frankish people who lived in what now we would call the Netherlands, roughly, they uh, experienced a problem where all of their really uh, capable leaders seemed to go off and take over other places and rule other places and assimilate to other cultures. Like I said, the Frankish kings of what is now France more or less became Romanized in a lot of ways and dropped the language completely and took up what is now the French language. So the area and the people who gave birth to all these amazing leaders suffered because all those amazing leaders went elsewhere, and the area kind of languished in these little feudal estates where there were no great kings, there were just local lords, and they did everything they really could to just kind of maintain their small amount of petty power. To that end, after Charlemagne died, his empire was split up between his sons into three sections, and then eventually we get this thing called the Holy Roman Empire which is mostly modern-day Germany and where German is spoken, but also goes down into Italy and to the low countries like uh, Luxembourg, uh, Belgium, and the Netherlands. Now, in the Holy Roman Empire, you have this emperor somewhere, and he has very, very little control over what's actually going on inside of the empire. Now, that changes century to century, person to person. But in general, when you think of an emperor, you think of somebody who has his hand on the pulse of the country. The Holy Roman Emperor really didn't have very much power at all and in fact, at many times, the Pope had more power over that empire than the actual emperor. And if you look at a map of this empire, it's amazing because it looks like confetti. There's colors all over the place. If you uh, find a map based on government types, you can see inside of the Holy Roman Empire, there were fiefdoms. There were duchies, which were run by dukes. There were principalities where your your head guy was a, was a prince. They were things called republics, which might have been more or less like oligarchies. There were all sorts of strange little tiny governments going on. And really, the empire was just a bunch of really tiny nation states, almost like city states in ancient Greece. And so the ancestors of the modern day Dutch, they kind of languished inside of this Holy Roman Empire where there really wasn't any firm lines between different ethnic groups and linguistic groups. It was all kind of just a mess. Everything was spread all over the place. There is some evidence of a of a Nordic invasion of sorts when the Viking Age rose about. And so there is some Viking influence. Well, Viking is a job. It's not an ethnic group. But there is a little bit of Nordic influence coming in at certain points. But by and large, we're still talking about those Saxons and those Frisians and those Franks, all in the same area, the low countries, near the water at the end of the great rivers of Europe. The great Dutch historian Peter Geil... He says that during this time, there was no clear division between who was Dutch, or who was German, or even who was Danish, who was Frisian, who was Flemish, who was all these different things that we kind of recognize today. It was all kind of mixed together. Because there was no force to separate things. There was no there's there was nobody there like, oh, we're Germany, and so the Germans should live over here. And if you don't speak German, you should get out. Oh, we're the Netherlands. This is what we're all about. There was no firm line. And so to speak of a Dutch people at this time would really be uh, anachronistic. It wouldn't fit for the time because everything was kind of blurred together and even in between these small states that would have been mostly Dutch speaking the people from Holland early on didn't necessarily think that the people of Zealand next door were brothers to them they thought there was enough of a difference there that they were different people there was no wider sense of national nationality or loyalty to anyone beyond like I said somebody living within just the experience of your own life which just might be a couple miles So how did the Dutch people kind of distinguish themselves from this Germanic mass that we see growing in the middle of Central Europe? Well, in Europe at the time, let's say you were the king of England and you inherited from a great grandfather or something a little bit of land in France. Well, that was fine. You could be a lord in France and owe your allegiance in France to the king of France. And then you could turn around and be the king of England. They were were separate interests, right? You got a house over here, and that's your landlord, but you own this house over here. And that's fine. That actually existed. This was true inside of the Holy Roman Empire, probably more so than anywhere else. You could be the king of France and be a lord of some property inside of the Holy Roman Empire. And because the emperor was so weak, generally you were in charge of that land, but you owed some at least symbolic uh, allegiance to that Holy Roman Emperor. But, of course, you don't have to pledge all of France to him. That's a separate issue. So matters were separate. There was no idea of nation-state. That was first starting to develop. So people owned different land in all sorts of different places, and the people who lived on that land had to listen to them. But this idea of one powerful nation was just starting to come into being. So, in fact, before this period and then, you know, after the Roman Empire, a lot of what we would call nation-states were really just like landlords, Right. You have a one big landlord at the top and then smaller landlords underneath. That's, you know, lords. So we'd have lords and dukes and vassals and kings and kings and emperors. And I think I think I said kings twice. There were a lot of kings. So it just so happened eventually the Habsburg monarchies of Spain acquired control of a whole bunch of area inside of the Holy Roman Empire. Including what is now the Netherlands and what used to be called the Spanish Netherlands, which is Belgium and probably Liechtenstein on and off. And these Habsburg kings, they unified those lands in a sense. So they slowly got control of that whole block. So instead of one town owned by this guy, one town owned by that guy, the Habsburgs weren't Habsburgs were in charge of that entire block. So suddenly there was a little bit of this political unity for the first time. So that's our first layer we're putting down. Next layer, we're getting to the Protestant Reformation. And I don't want to get into all the details of the Protestant Reformation, but you have Martin Luther spreading Lutheranism. And then eventually you get this guy named John Calvin, and that's where it starts to reach the Netherlands. Calvinism really takes off in the Netherlands. But Spain remains staunchly Catholic. So now you have this big Spanish Empire owning a little bit of the Holy Roman Empire. And that section is becoming, you know, at first a large minority is becoming Calvinist. Meanwhile, the controlling agent, the Spanish authorities, are staunchly Catholic. So now we're seeing how the Dutch people are starting to see a difference between the rulers and the ruled. Now, as long as the Spanish monarch decides to stay at home and rule from a distance, letting the nobles and the lords, who were native to the Netherlands, the different provinces and cities inside of the Netherlands, letting them do their own thing and then collecting some taxes every now and then, this, that, and the other thing. As long as that was in place, the people in the Netherlands were more or less fine with the arrangement. Because, again, they were used to that for, at that point, okay, we're talking, you know, the 16th century, almost a millennium of just having these rulers who lived somewhere else who had no real contact with them. They were used to the distance. They liked the distance. But what happens is the Spanish start to try to pull in the Netherlands and the other low countries. Everything they controlled, they started to slowly make it part of their empire. Consolidate. I'm not just the lord of your land. You're part of this larger idea, this larger empire that I'm putting together. And so because of the religious intolerance at the time, if I'm going to have one unified empire, I want it to be, well, if I'm Spain, I want it to be Catholic. So I need to get rid of the foreign influences and the evil influences, Calvinism especially. And so that Spanish Inquisition, which you always hear so many horror stories about, it shows up in the Netherlands and it does not go well. When the Spanish King Charles V begins the Inquisition in the Netherlands, the Pope actually goes, no, this isn't good. I don't want this. So the Inquisition was so bad in Spain and the Netherlands, the Pope at the time was even like, I don't know about this. The people living in the Netherlands at the time were not used to this kind of direct government action from their distant rulers, and it was really upsetting to both the nobles and the common people. The Inquisition got so bad at certain times that the nobility got together from all these different states, and they started to get a common sense of unity out of this, and they actually petitioned the uh, Spanish crown, and they said, this is ridiculous, we have to stop this. And a lot of the people signing this petition were were actually Catholic, because you could be suspected of being some sort of, you know, person not believing of the faith, even if you were a pure Catholic, and not be able to defend yourself and suffer some horrible consequence as a result. So Catholics and Protestants kind of stood up together to this idea of the Inquisition and said, no, we don't want this. This has to end. So eventually, around 1566 or so, the Inquisition kind of dies out in the Netherlands. But the memory of the Inquisition only served to create hatred for Catholics where they, there might not have been any before. And churches were raided and pillaged and possessions were taken. People were out for revenge, even believers of the Catholic faith who felt like their leaders had betrayed them in some way. The Inquisition also put officers in charge from the church who answered to Spain and not the local leaders. So the local lords in charge of these little, little tiny cities and provinces, so to speak, that we were talking about, they saw how Spain was kind of reaching past them to assert direct control over the people, and they didn't like that either. So a lot of the local rulers in the Netherlands, they were finally saying things like, okay, I see what's happening here. Spain's trying to make an empire, but we have ancestral rights. We've been doing this for a thousand years, our families. We've been in control of this area, and this has been the understanding that I have the real power, and you have a say from afar. I'll give you some taxes, maybe some men to help you fight every now and then. But when push comes to shove, most of the decisions are made by me and my family. So now the upper crust of what would become the Dutch, they're starting to go, "Mm, I don't like this arrangement anymore. So now we're coming up on the real Dutch revolution. And it sounds very familiar. If you're an American, you have a a small group of disconnected states that are don't really know each other yet, but they're fighting to overthrow a big, powerful empire and get their freedom and establish a republic. What does that sound like to you? Well, that's the Dutch Republic, which existed over a century before you're going to see the United States. There's a podcast out there called The Almost Forgotten. They do a nine-part series on the Dutch Revolution, and, or revolt, depends on your point of view. And it's fantastic, and it will take you a very long time to get through. And I have no intention of going through the entire Dutch Revolution. It's not the focus of this podcast. But imagine the American Revolution, but it takes, you know, 80 years to complete. So you're going to have five George Washingtons. You're going to have four King George III's. It's amazing. It's more complicated than Game of Thrones. It's, it's this intricate thing that one day will be some sort of HBO special because it is massive. So anyway, some portion of what's considered the Netherlands revolts at various times. And usually in the north, that's where they assert the most freedom. And then Spain comes up through the south and they try to reassert Spanish rule. And you see the division start to develop. And what ends up happening is that Catholics tend to flee to the south. And then the Protestants tend to flee to the north. So you're starting to see groups of people coalesce. There's a division in the middle. And what eventually this is going to create is a barrier between what we call the Netherlands today and then what used to be called the Spanish Netherlands, which is roughly like um, Belgium and Liechtenstein and all these other little places. So this all could have been one country at a certain point, but we see a religious division and the movement of people And then we see battle lines being drawn. So we see a people that might have been one split into two or three. And during this war for independence, the Dutch going on for decades, there'd be assassinations and all sorts of plots, and the front line will move back and forth, and sometimes it'll look like the Netherlands is almost lost. Then other times it'll look like Spain is about ready to give up, and then there'll be a truce we'll talk about. It's insane. It's absolutely crazy, the back and forth going on here. But like I said, we're going to see a concentration of what's going to be called the Dutch Reformed Church in what's going to be the Netherlands and then further south, we're going to see the Catholic Church consolidate power there. And there'll be a real division. And in the north, we're actually going to see that the Dutch were fairly tolerant of other religions. We're going to see a movement in of Jewish refugees. We're going to see Huguenots from France who had Protestant beliefs, not exactly Dutch reform. And we're going to see Catholics. They still live in the Netherlands. And the treatment of them after the Inquisition, is going to there's going to be some suspicion. But there's going to be a lot more tolerance in the Netherlands than in other places in Europe. So that's something they can hang their hat on. Now, how was this little tiny country that wasn't even a country yet, just a bunch of states kind of confederated together? How are they able to resist the Spanish for any length of time? Because this is like the the apex of the Spanish Empire. Well, they have a lot of tricks up their sleeves. We're going to get into that. So one thing that happens is 1588, the Spanish Armada. The English actually destroy Spain's navy for the most part. And the English at this time were Protestant. They were Anglican. So this is after the time of Henry VIII and during Queen Elizabeth. So England kind of sucker punches Spain. Just wipes them out for a while. That allows the Netherlands, who are further east than England is in relation to Spain, to get a little more breathing room. A little more time to plan things and organize. The Dutch at times are actually able to convince the French to help them. Because although the French are going to be officially Catholic, their empire on the rise... And they want to take on the Spanish sometimes. So you can imagine the King of France or Cardinal Richelieu sitting there and going, well, you know, we're Catholic here, but can't really take too much from the Netherlands. On the other hand, we got this big, powerful empire to the south of us who could take our stuff, or maybe we could take their stuff. So there's many times where the French are like, you know what? We're going to help the Protestants. And that's very helpful because France is, boom, smack in between the Spanish possessions inside the Holy Roman Empire and where Spain is. So France just works as a huge block. And again, like I said, the English, also very helpful, Protestant, and that times helping the Dutch a lot of times, wiping out the Armada and giving the uh, Dutch help at various other times too. So you have these two countries, one medium-sized, one big-sized, helping out. The Dutch also become a center of trade and finance, and they're able to finance all these other little Protestant countries further west of them, to helping the war effort, and they're able to convince people and bribe people at times into helping the Dutch against the Spanish. This is true especially for the the Danish crown and the Swedish crown. So the Dutch were always pulling the strings because they were controlling the trade. It said they controlled like 70% of the trade going through the Baltic Sea during uh, the Dutch Golden Age. So they were able to pull on all the levers and get everybody to help them. So this little tiny engine that could was able to take on the great Spanish Empire. Another advantage that they had is, again, they were small, semi-independent states that formed the Republic of the Netherlands. So you take one area, you're the, the Spanish king, and you take over one area. Well, the other areas have independence from one another, and they're somewhat able to just make it on their own. And they have access to the sea, and they can still trade to some extent. This isn't like uh, during the World Wars where it's like, well, if we take Paris, we'll get all of France to surrender. There was no exact Paris to take, which is a huge advantage. Another advantage, which is probably unique to the Dutch, at least at this time, is, well, it's in their very name. You know, they, they live in the area called the Netherlands. Even back then, you know, you would see Netherlands or low countries. It's, for a Germanic word, l- literally meaning low land. So it's a land that's almost in the ocean and at times below sea level. Some ancient Roman writers even describing the area couldn't imagine how people live there they they would say things like i don't know what's part of the ocean what's part of the land you know you go there at one time and it's three feet under the ocean you go there at another time it's completely dry so the dutch by the time of the revolution had developed a huge system of dikes going all throughout the country and they were able to control what those dikes did now think about this you're a spanish army and you're trying to march right into a city that's on your side of a river then all of a sudden the dutch are able to create an artificial river they're able to destroy their own dikes or just release a little bit of that pressure and have all of a sudden there's two feet of water where there used to be dry land and now your troops are mucking, mucking their way through and it's taking seven times as long to get somewhere. So the Dutch had the interesting ability to literally sink their own land if they had to. In some places in the north of the Netherlands, they're literal islands without using dikes or redirecting water. They existed as islands at that time And you need a military force to get there that's naval in in nature. You need some sort of armada if you're the Spanish. And of course, like we discussed, you'd have to get past the French. And you'd have to get past the English. And then you'd have to take on the Dutch just to get to that island. So not only were there actual islands, but large chunks of the Netherlands could essentially break their way off in uh, artificial rivers and artificial islands. And you can turn a naval invasion force by land into a situation where now you have to do island hopping like in the Pacific during World War II. So the Dutch could change the scenario very quick, whereas the Spanish, they don't have the time to adjust. They're coming from far away, and they don't have the tools at their disposal. So just when they seemed down and out, the Dutch were able to go, "Ah, I'm going to do a Kobayashi Maru, change the situation altogether, and boom, now I'm winning. So Kobayashi Maru. It's a Star Trek reference. It's it's, it's applicable. Trust me. So how did the Dutch organize themselves? Well, at the national level, they're just starting to get a sense of, of, of a nation state. Some historians call them a semi-nation or a proto-nation because they're just starting to come together. At the national level, they have what's called the States General that meet at The Hague. And believe it or not, the States General was originally set up by foreign rulers who said, hey, this whole area, we're kind of in charge of all you guys now. Let's make one group of people that we have to tell what to do or we have to listen to. So all these different little tiny states that were inside of what is now the Netherlands, they had to come together and be part of the states general, which were originally the go-between between those areas and the ruler from afar. So the states general served as a confederate or federal type of government. And then each, inside of each individual state, like Zeeland and Holland and all these little th- Brabant and all those places, you had an individual states general. So you had levels of, you know, a Congress of people at at every level. And although they called themselves the Dutch Republic, it wasn't a republic how we understand it today, or even how it was right after the American Revolution, where if you were a white man and you own some land, you get to vote. It wasn't quite like that, and it changed uh, from place to place. So in some places, the nobles had all the power, and there was still nobility. And in other places, you know, there was a mixture of nobles and burgermeisters, so the burghers of the city. So a guy who's not nobility, he doesn't have a title or anything, but he's well-to-do. He's got a good business and he pays his taxes, so he's a citizen of the city. He gets to vote. So we have weird combination, city to city, all these different little states generals. And then at the top, you have the states general. And again, despite being a republic, at the top, you had a noble of sorts. And he was called the stadtholder, the, the stateholder, basically the steward. So we don't have a king yet, and the Netherlands will get a monarchy. But at the top, there is a noble who's the stateholder, the stadtholder, city holder. The translation is a little goofy, depending on w- which way you want to go with it. But there was a guy at the top, and he was a steward. He wasn't like a king, but he was the unifying face behind the Dutch Republic. But he didn't have the same power and prestige as a king. And they, they made sure he knew that. They're like, you're, you're, you're the stadtholder. You're not the king. So uh, the only thing that Americans, because we have a hard time wrapping our heads around this, this would be like if you guys saw Lord of the Rings and the one kingdom was controlled by a steward and they told him, you know, you're not a king. You're just the steward. You're just in place until the king comes back. It's a similar idea where you're the steward. You are in charge, but you don't have the power of a king. When push comes to shove, the states general, if you're bad enough, could probably get rid of you but in time that the Stadtholder would eventually become the monarchy. And this is going to be well after the period that we're learning about. So a portion of the Netherlands first broke away in 1581 with the Act of Abjuration. And if you read it, it sounds a lot, well, you got to read an English translation, sounds a lot like the Declaration of Independence. And we do know that Thomas Jefferson had a volume on the, uh, the, the Dutch Republic in his collection, on the Revolution, on the, the 80 Years' War, 30 Years' War, and all that. So there might have been some influence there, although it's, it's a little bit murky. But in it, they argue, just like in the Declaration of Independence, they say, you know what, King of Spain, you haven't lived up your obligations towards us. You haven't done your part, therefore your power here is invalidated. You have invalidated yourself. We don't need to listen to you anymore. The important part about this is, not only were they rejecting Spain, but because the King of Spain had his power over that area because he was part of the Holy Roman Empire, they were also saying we're not part of the Holy Roman Empire. Of course, none of this would be recognized for another 80 years or so. So in reference to our story about New Netherland, here's the background on the Dutch that I've been giving you. The Dutch Golden Age roughly coincides with the entire existence of New Netherland. And the Dutch Golden Age doesn't really start until about 1609. So we have this Declaration of Independence, and then we have decades later, 1609, we have the start of a Golden Age for the Dutch. And it it will be fantastic. It's going to be amazing. And it's going to be one of the reasons why it was so hard to get people to move to New Netherland. That's because Old Netherland was doing great. And the one political event that kind of starts off the Dutch Golden Age is they actually force Spain into a truce. They wear Spain down to the point where they go, all right, listen, I'm not officially giving up on my claim to this area, but let's agree to a truce. And they agree to about a 12-year truce. This is going to be like, okay, the war is still technically going on, but we're not going to do A, B, and C to each other. So one side effect of all this warfare going on is that people flooded the Netherlands because there was lots of jobs there and it was safe, like we talked about before. Lots of opportunities. And so this is the real beginning of the, of the Golden Age for the Dutch Republic. You have the Dutch people who are there and then all these other skilled workers who find their way there. When it came to culture, the Dutch, the Dutch had music. They, they composed classical music. They were never really the focus, I would say, of classical music in any given era, at least not at this time. But when it came to painting during the Dutch Golden Age, the painting was remarkable. If you look at it, look at Rembrandt or Vermeer, for instance, it, some of it is photorealistic. And you can even compare. I was going through with my wife some paintings that were done by the English and the Spanish during this time. And then we were looking at some of Vermeer's paintings, and you go, whoa, this is leagues, leagues ahead of what's going on elsewhere. I mean, if you look at some of the portraits of Spanish monarchs even you go well this is kind of cartoony looks a little flat there are areas that are just all one color there's nothing there that really brings it out to light but the dutch especially with their use of portraying light it was amazing in fact people some people think that the dutch painters some of them at least were cheating and using lenses and mirrors and concocting strange little camera obscuras and devices in order to not copy an image down like a camera on film would do, but project an image so that you could paint the image so to speak. And there's a really good documentary it came out a couple of years ago. It was produced by, uh, what's his face? Penn Jillette from Penn & Teller, the magician group there. And it has this guy in it named Tim Jennison, I believe. Tim Jennison, really uh, important guy with CGI and early kind of computer graphics in the 90s, I believe. And he took up this theory that the Dutch painters were using secret devices, mirrors and lenses and whatnot and he constructed a device and he he, without any painting experience managed to make a pretty damn good replica of a vermeer and so i i highly suggest it. i think it's called um tim's vermeer it's a very good documentary and it makes you wonder makes you go oh were they more you know tinkerers with things rather than artists did they were they more like scientists and inventors than you know the artistic types it's it's really hard to tell Certainly during the Dutch Golden Age, we see all sorts of new uses of lenses, and it really starts in the Netherlands, right? You see the uh, telescope was invented in the Netherlands, and then Galileo very shortly uh, picked up on the idea. And the microscope was invented in the Netherlands. Optics were invented in the Netherlands during this time. It's really amazing to think about, but maybe all these Dutch painters were just using a device. And But the thing is, none of none of these devices have ever been found. There's been sketches of certain things, but nothing is left in a will. Nothing is left in, in the estate of a, of a dead artist. So if they did do this, if they were using devices, they hid their secrets very well. So that's, that's art at the time. So like I said, during the Dutch Golden Age, the visual arts, the paintings, really excelled pretty much everywhere else in the world. I don't think anyone could argue with me on that point. When it came to their drink of choice during the Golden Age and all other ages, the Dutch preferred beer. So typically, you go to the Romance countries, wine is the drink of choice. You go up to the Germanic countries, it's usually beer. You go out to uh, Russia, it's usually spirits. So the Dutch, they drank a lot of beer. And they uh, they had a stereotype for being the drunks. So today, in today's culture, some people might stereotype the Irish as being big drinkers. But back then, the Dutch held the title. One figure I found is that the Dutch, during the Dutch Golden Age drank three-fourths of a gallon of beer per person every day, on average, in any given year. That's per person, a man, woman, child, baby, boom, per capita, three-fourths of a gallon of beer. Contrast this to the educational system in the Netherlands, meaning they actually had one. I believe Holland was the first place in Europe to have free public education, at least the first place to have that since maybe portions of the Roman Empire fell apart. I don't know. And during the Dutch Golden Age, half the books printed in the entire world will be printed in the Netherlands. Another way the Dutch were ahead of their time, especially compared to, like, the English, is when there was an estate. When somebody died, the estate was divided equally among the children. And now in England, typically, a large landowner would give all the land to the oldest man. And that created a lot of landless, semi-wealthy people. And that created a lot of problems, as you can imagine. Now in the Netherlands, everybody got a share. Just like today, typically... All your kids get an equal share. And in the Netherlands, that also included the women. The Dutch nobility, they dress modestly. They're described as being very ordinary compared to the nobility of other countries. And so if you were visiting from, let's say, Spain or Portugal you would notice a large difference between the classes. It would be hard to distinguish, well, who's the lord and who's a servant and who's kind of in that middle class and who's a burgermeister. It would be difficult because everyone kind of dressed in the same style with smaller differences, whereas in other countries, as you can see in portraits, kings are wearing, well, they're starting to wear stockings and high heels, huge wigs and walking around with decorative sabers. And, uh, you know, even the lower classes are, are wearing large, purple outfits and big hats with feathers in it they're doing all sorts of odd things throughout the ages to show that they have wealth and power and they don't necessarily need to use their hands and work for a living the dutch simply didn't have this hang up and the nobles were known to treat the lower classes with a little more respect a little more sense of equality again because they were a sort of republic not in the modern sense but in the sense of the day they were a republic and so there were laws saying you can't beat your servants Which sounds like a pretty common sense law, but you're not going to find that law anywhere else in Europe at the time. So again, they're ahead of the time. They're entering their golden age and they're actually pushing the world forward in a number of different ways. On that note, the Dutch kind of innovated the idea, at least from this era on, of tolerance. Now that word today means something very different. Tolerance today means I celebrate you for being diverse and being different than me. At the time, tolerance in the 17th century would mean something along the lines of, you're different than me in some fundamental way, some way that I find important, but I'm not gonna kill you. So tolerance goes back to the literal definition of tolerance, like how much pain can you tolerate? So tolerance at this time means, I don't like you, we don't get along, we don't see eye to eye, but I won't kill you. I'm going to literally just tolerate your existence. So the Dutch had a significant amount of tolerance at this time, considering a huge chunk of the rest of, the Euro- of Europe is killing each other over a difference in religion, which today we would consider, you know, a fraction of 1%, a very small difference. So the Dutch really stood out in this way and made the Netherlands a haven for Jewish people who were escaping places like Spain and Portugal where these inquisitions were going on. They were also pretty tolerant of Catholics, even though the reform movement seems to have taken over, especially in the northern part of the Netherlands. The Catholics fared well there, better than in other Protestant countries. And then even the pilgrims, the the famous pilgrims from England who escaped religious prosecute, all that half-fake story that you learned about, before the pilgrims went to... Uh, Plymouth in the New World, they went to the Netherlands. So the Pilgrims actually lived in the Netherlands before they settled in Plymouth. And they actually, they, they did quite well there. They were quite welcomed. And one of the reasons they ended up moving out of the Netherlands is because their children were becoming too Dutch. They were fitting in too well. And the kids were too absorbed by the Dutch culture. In fact, the historian J. Franklin Jameson, He said, this is a really good quote here, when the Pilgrim Fathers fled from England to Holland, they were passing to a country with a more advanced civilization. So even though Holland in the Netherlands and England are not that far apart in distance, and even some ways in culture, the Netherlands were banging on all cylinders. They had all sorts of things that England didn't even come close to having yet. At least not in in those amounts, things we've already talked about. So when the Pilgrims showed up, they must have just been in awe of certain things. And like I said, the Pilgrim Fathers eventually just went like, our kids are just becoming Dutch. We're losing the distinctiveness that made us want to isolate ourselves in the first place. Let's get out of here. And the last thing on this, the Pilgrim Fathers, before returning to England, actually considered being immigrants to a new colony called New Netherland. So in a weird alternative universe, New Netherland would have been uh, settled by these Pilgrims, who were actually called separatists, but we'll get into that at some later time. With this tolerance came the reduction of witch hunts. The Netherlands, I believe their last witch hunt was in 1610. That's what my note says. That's a really early date. If you look at witch hunts in the United States and in Europe, they keep going in mass amounts. The the Netherlands, after the Inquisition, kind of began a movement towards secularization. They basically drew a line, and they had some tolerance, and they said religious life goes over here, then everything else goes over here. And so that's an important thing. And we're going to see that that is the source of the secularism we have today, where you could still be religious, but just don't let that interfere with you getting along with other people. Now, eventually the Dutch Reformed Church establishes some sort of state religion for a while. They're supposed to be the only religion, but nobody really enforced that. So in other words, the Jews, they were allowed to worship. They got exemptions. The Catholics were allowed to bribe sheriffs and whatnot and continue to do their thing and so even though officially there was a state religion at certain times it never really worked out that way and people were always able to grease the palm a little bit you know and uh, get away with doing what they wanted this move towards secularism was not lost on protestant nations who once felt like hey we were we're brothers in a common cause here they started to see that the netherlands was kind of more about business and they were a little more laid back and not so uh you know beating the bible with it uh oliver cromwell who took over England for a while. He said, the Dutch love grain more than godliness. And we're going to see that the English and the Dutch go back and forth quite a bit. Part of what causes the secularism is, by breaking down the boundaries and the barriers, we can get a lot more done. Life can get better. The quality of life in- increases. The people you can trade with increases. So, uh, for example, like Lutherans couldn't loan money. It wasn't really a thing at that time. It was considered usury. But Calvinists were allowed to. So the Dutch Reformed Church was Calvinist, and that allowed in a lot of banking, and a lot of lending of money, and a lot of credit lines. Meanwhile, the Lutherans couldn't really do that. But the Lutherans and the Calvinists, they could come to some sort of arrangement, because typically a Lutheran couldn't loan money to another Lutheran, but you could trade and loan money to a Calvinist with no problem because they're, you know, they're going to hell anyway. The same thing with the Jewish people in the Netherlands at the time. The fact that, well, we can't loan money to our own people, but we can loan money across the table to each other. That allowed for banking to emerge like the modern banking system that keeps everything running and allows you to buy a house and a car. The, the extension of credit, which within a lot of religions is considered immoral. But across religions, it works quite well. So all these talented people and all this trade and interaction, because the Netherlands was basically cut in half by the Spanish, and the southern half is going to become Belgium and Liechtenstein. because of that, you see a large amount of people moving north, like we talked about, especially people who are Protestant. And Catholics are sometimes moving south, but a lot of Catholics are just kind of staying right there. So all the important centers of the Netherlands kind of switch and change up quite a bit. They all move north. So Antwerp used to be this big, important city in the Netherlands. And because it's just so close to the Spanish, it everybody kind of moves north slowly to safer, safer places, like we mentioned before. Places that can cut themselves off completely. And so Zeeland becomes important, way up north there. And then Holland, of course, just dominates, takes over everything. And I, I have some figures here. I believe the population, here it is, population of Amsterdam. From 1510, so before their revolution, to 1650, right after they were officially recognized by the Spanish. We're talking 140 years. Over that 140-year span, the population of Amsterdam increased 12-fold. So whatever it was, multiply it by 12 in 140 years. That is massive. And then on the other side of things, places in the southern Netherlands kind of just drained out. People move towards the coast, they move towards the north. And so that leads us into our next subject, the maritime trading empire that the Netherlands managed to put together. The Dutch are going to set themselves up as the first Amazon.com of the world, the first Walmart, so to speak. The first service you can go to one place and they'll have anything you can possibly imagine in the world. If anyone's going to have it, they're going to have it. That's going to be the Dutch. Now, how did this great trading empire begin? Well, it actually started while the Dutch were still part of the Spanish empire. The Spanish Empire being the most powerful empire in the world at the time, the most far-reaching. The Dutch, as vassals to the Spanish, learned how to sail and navigate the world, had access to maps that other ethnic groups just didn't have access to because they weren't part of the empire. And the subject of secret maps, that's going to come up in our uh, next episode, or second to next episode, about Henry Hudson. At this time, there aren't published atlases of the entire world. Okay, there's little smaller maps of different sections and then there's best guesses and then one person's map might contradict another person's map. Having an accurate map of an area of the world that nobody else has... Is a real gift. It puts you at a real advantage. And the Dutch are gonna have early access to maps that only the Spanish would have access to because they're part of that empire. But everything is kicked into hyperdrive with the founding of the Dutch East India Company. Now in Dutch, and I know I'm gonna butcher this, it is pronounced the Verendische Oost-Indische Company. The Dutch initials, of course, are going to be VOC. So I'm gonna probably use that from now on because that's gonna be a mouthful if I have to use the uh unabbreviated form. Just to give you a scale of how big and important the, the VOC was, because you might go be going like, well, why do I even care about this? The VOC in today's money, by best estimate, today's United States dollar, would be worth about $8 trillion. Now, if you look at the worth of, let's say, Google or Apple or any of these large companies, you think of Walmart, they're usually around half a trillion dollars. So the VOC is going to be roughly 16 times bigger than any other company you were going to come by out there. It is massive. And if it existed today, it would be everywhere. And the founding of the VOC, because it was just worth so much and it made so much money for so many people, it started out basically what we call the stock market today. It really came together because of the VOC. So the VOC started and then everybody was like, wow, wow. I want to get on top of the next VOC. They wanted to be part of the next one, and so we get stock exchanges. Amsterdam is going to be the location of the first stock exchange. And, of course, the biggest stock exchange today is going to be in New York City, which is going to be New Amsterdam, and we'll get to that in a far distant episode. So, first stock companies come out of the Netherlands, first stock market, the first future contracts, which you can look up how to do future contracts. It's complicated. The first uh, stock options. The first... Uh, Stock derivatives. So that's where you're leveraging bets and doing certain things like that. And security trading. So security trading, uh, securities trading, derivatives, options, future contracts, stocks, public offerings, stock markets. It all comes from Amsterdam. This is the beginning of the modern financial world. Other Other than banking, which has a more convoluted history. When you think about big business, this all starts in Amsterdam. This is it. So there are a lot of other companies around at this time, but the VOC alone transforms Amsterdam. We've already talked about the population shift and how it just grew exponentially. But also, if you think about it, the VOC, they, work, they operate completely on ships powered by the wind. You need ships to get everything to you and everything away from you. So you need boat help. Everybody's working on a boat. You need those dock workers. You need somebody bringing in provisions, somebody growing those provisions far off or making textiles or whatever you're going to need on that ship. You're going to need merchants who know what they're doing. You're going to have to house all those people when they're in town. And you're going to need a lot of people repairing these ships. Because a lot of these ships have to go to dry dock after, you know, sailing around the world and be repaired. Now, the VOC kind of came together because there was a whole bunch of different merchant groups that were competing with one another all around the world, South America and in the Far East. And they finally wanted to consolidate everything. So let's get the protection of the Netherlands. Let's come together and your profits will be my profits. We'll share. Our losses will be your losses. And, you know, there'll be a general sharing of the fates, so to speak. So let's all get in one big club together and make tons of money. Why compete when we can all benefit? The Dutch are just going to dominate trade in Southeast Asia and what they call the East Indies, which are all the islands south of Southeast Asia. And in Northern Europe, I think I already mentioned they controlled like 70% of the boats going through the Baltic Sea were Dutch owned or operated or financed the VOC is going to be so powerful the Dutch government, the states general give the VOC permission to declare war and declare peace so this is a company that will have its own military in a sense, it'll be it'll be the navy of the Netherlands for the most part, and it will be able to conduct war and peace all by itself which is an insane thought if you think about today, imagine if Walmart could declare war on Amazon, like legitimate war the workers are getting up and armed And they're going to go attack and kill other people. It would be insanity. But this is what was going on at the time. So the Dutch, one part of the VOC for the Dutch were to use the VOC Navy to essentially attack Spanish ships. Because, you know, it was found in 1602 and we don't have a truce until about 1609. There's going to be years where there's this great silver fleet of ships coming from Mexico and South America carrying silver and a little bit of gold back to Spain and places like Portugal. So the Dutch would just go down there and they'd capture a ship full of silver and gold. Could you imagine? And the the dark side of this is this is how the Dutch actually get involved into the slave trade. Because in in addition to gold and silver moving out of the Americas, we're going to start to see slaves move from Africa to the Caribbean, basically, and parts of South America. But after the defeat of the Spanish Armada by the English, the Dutch can sail pretty much right by Spain. They can go into the Mediterranean because the Spanish were hurt so badly by this. It took them so long to recover that the Dutch in Holland, they could trade timber up in Russia and parts of the Baltic and actually get it all the way into the Middle East pretty cheap compared to taking it overland across what is basically Western Asia. And they could take this timber square around Spain and not have much uh, interference because, like I said, Spain was just down and out. They got sucker punched bad. So as you can imagine, the profits were enormous on stuff like this. So I have some figures here. 1602, they were founded in 1602. By 1610, they were paying a 75% dividend, which is insane. And then later in in the same year, 1610, another 50% dividend. So if I'm reading that right, let's say you invested $100. We'll use today's money, $100. So sometime during the year, you're going to get 75 of your $100 back. And then by the end of the year, you get another 50 on top of that. You're going to more than double your money. And then you still own those shares. That's what a dividend is. It's money paid to a share owner just for owning the shares. So every now and then I buy Disney stock. And whatever I buy in December, they usually have some kind of a dividend. I don't have to sell my stock. I just get free money from the company from being an owner. It's pretty nice. But you're not getting, you might get 3%, 4% if you're lucky yearly. The VOC is paying 75% dividends some years. And then sometimes they're throwing on another 50%. And then I have a figure here in 1632. So this is after New Netherland is founded. They have a dividend minimum which they set a rule saying we're paying no less than this on top of your shares at 12.5%. Again, if there were any stocks that paid like that today, oh, it would go through the roof. That's a crazy guarantee. Now, what are some of the things that were brought back to Europe that Europeans found so amazing and they never had access to before? Well, pepper. Have you ever heard of pepper? Not hot pepper from the Americas, not like peppers, you know, peppers. I'm talking about peppercorns. Pepper was just something Europeans didn't have access to. And as you can imagine, the second pepper shows up in the Netherlands, probably Holland, it just spread all over the continent and caused a craze. Because for the first time ever, you have a taste of pepper in your mouth. And pepper, I believe, originally came from the island of Java. When a big ship of pepper came in to Amsterdam, they would ring the bells because everyone was so excited for this pepper to show up. Imagine not having any spices on your food your entire life no paprika, you'll you'll have salt, basically, but no paprika, no pepper, oregano, tarragon, any of these things that you associate with, like, really good-tasting food. None of that. Just plain food. You're eating meat, you're eating some kind of vegetable, and you might be able to sprinkle some salt on it. So when pepper came in, they'd ring the bells, everyone would go insane, because it was literally a flavor you've never had on your tongue before. There was no way to describe it. What does pepper taste like? Well, it tastes like pepper. Well, if you've never had pepper before, that's probably a pretty amazing experience. Maybe you could think about the first time you had a certain food, like the first time you had ice cream as a kid. It's amazing. Another product that we usually associate with the Dutch and the Netherlands and New Netherlands are tulips. And tulips are not actually from Europe. They're not from the Netherlands. They're actually from Turkey or Asia Minor, somewhere in Asia Minor originally. And when they were first shipped back to the Netherlands, it caused a craze. We're talking like Beanie Babies times 10, fidget spinners times 20. Massive craze. From the late 1630s on, we're talking about millions of dollars a year spent on tulips. It was insane because it was, again, something they've never seen before. It's a flower that had never been seen before by anyone you know or yourself. But then like all bubbles, it just burst at a certain point. So around 1637, I've written down here that a lot of speculators lost their entire life's savings and entire built-up fortunes on the tulip craze because it died down. People get used to things. People got used to pepper. People got used to tulips, and there were so many people who just went bankrupt. They lost everything. They put too much money on it. This would be similar to um, the housing bubble that we had. Well, not really similar to the housing bubble. I would compare this to Pokemon cards, probably in the 90s. So in the 90s, you'd get these really shiny, reflective, holographic cards. And sometimes, if you wanted to get like the Charizard one, it was 100 hit points, and People were paying $100, $200 just for this one little piece of cardboard. And give it a year or two, people got over Pokemon and went down to $50. Then it went down some more. And I'm sure now you could find a Charizard for pretty cheap on eBay. So what goes up must come down. Somewhere along the way, those innovative Dutch folks, they realize, hey, you know, if uh, trade isn't so reliable, you know, sometimes stuff comes in, sometimes it doesn't. What if we try to make this stuff ourselves? So we have like a precursor to the industrial revolution happening in the Netherlands during this golden age. And the stuff they come out with is just unparalleled compared to the stuff you can buy in the rest of Europe. And it's just like the artwork where you go, whoa, this is leagues ahead of anything else going on. So people are going to buy from the VOC, they're going to buy from uh, the Amsterdam hubs that bring it in from other places in the world, and then the Dutch are just going to start making stuff themselves. But again, the pepper and the tulips were nothing compared to the things they could pillage from Spanish ships and Portuguese ships. The uh, historian Peter Gale actually says that the Dutch thrive upon war at this time. The VOC thrive upon war. It's a business where the backbone is going to be war with Spain. So remember that 12-year truce we talked about? There's going to be a time where that's about to lapse. And there's going to be a lot of people in the Netherlands going like, yeah, let it go. We need to get back in there. And since Portugal and Spain controlled so much of the Americas... It was important that the Dutch got in there one way or another because certain things were taking off in Europe, certain drugs like tobacco. And it was kind of a craze. And this was well before they knew what tobacco could do to you and well before they realized what addiction was. So the Dutch want to secure access to the tobacco of the Americas, which might involve stepping on the toes of Portugal and Spain. The Dutch will actually get control of uh, an exclusive license, I believe. Who was the name of the guy? I'm forgetting now, but the Dutch will have basically exclusive rights to import tobacco to the entire nation of Sweden. That's a pretty lucrative deal, especially once you get everyone hooked on the stuff. Now to finish off this section, I'm going to quote the historian Oliver A. Rink, very uh, important historian as far as the history of the Netherlands and New Netherlands is concerned. The empire remained a trade network in which private merchants from the fatherland could and did exercise decisive control over the movement of goods and people. The empire thrived largely because the Dutch merchant marine could harvest colonial products more efficiently and at a lower cost than its English, French, and Iberian competitors. What he's saying in that quote is what we know today, basically. It's as true then as it is now. If you want something done, you you need to have some sort of motivation and some profit for somebody to make off of it. So if you think about NASA most everything on a NASA shuttle or satellite or any sort of physical thing that NASA has is created by a private company. If you think about who's repairing roads and bridges, a lot of that is private companies. If you want something done, the government is going to get it done eventually and probably very slowly and efficiently, but private businesses can get stuff done really quick if the profit is there. And the Dutch realized that profit and the individual merchants were able to create an empire out of almost nothing in almost no time Whereas all these huge colonial powers kind of languished at this moment in history. So this is going to segue into our next episode about Henry Hudson and the early explorations of the Hudson River and the New World that all connect and come together. Henry Hudson will be hired by the VOC. He's an Englishman, but he will be hired by the Dutch. And the Dutch, long before Henry Hudson, have been sending sailors on what we would consider wild goose chases all around the world to look for a Northwest Passage to China and a Northeast Passage to China and just new markets and new resources to be plundered and whatnot. We're going to see men who seem to be extremely stupid. But if you understand the motivations at the time and what they knew about the world at the time, you're going to realize, well, they weren't so much stupid as extremely brave. They're basically almost like astronauts, and we'll talk about that in the next episode. And then we're also going to see that there's a lot of murky information. Because let's say you were a merchant and you realize, oh, wow, I can get furs from this river in the New World, and nobody else seems to know about it yet. Well, you're not going to go back, sell your furs in Amsterdam, and then say, hey, everybody, this is where I got it from. So when we get down to who actually discovered the Hudson River or who was the first people to trade up and down the Hudson back to Europe... There's going to be some questions, so we have a lot to cover. I'm glad you made it to the end of the episode with me. I'm sorry about all the rambling. I promise it will become important at some point in your life or in this story. I'm Eric Giannis. This has been the Other States of America History Podcast.